You are listening to the Ortho Idea Podcast, where we bring you the newest trends in orthopedic technology. Tune in for engaging interviews with medical device executives, surgeons, and surprise special guests discussing new disruptive technology in the marketplace. Here is your host, Eric Anderson. Thanks, everyone, for turning into the Ortho Idea Podcast. My name is Eric Anderson, and I will be your host today. And today I have the honor of speaking to Mr. Ken Gall, and he is a professor and associate dean of entrepreneurship at Duke University, and also a co-founder in several different organizations, and as well as being on the board of several different companies. So we're really excited today to be able to talk to Ken and get his perspective on some of the things and new technologies he's working on. So without further ado, Ken, how are you today? Eric, I'm doing good. Thank you. Great. Well, again, I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to come on today. And we kind of went back and forth on on email and having the opportunity to talk to talk to you about something really exciting, which is you're a co-founder of Restore3D, which is a really cutting-edge technology and very interesting in the space of not only orthopedics, but several different verticals. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about Restore3D, kind of the evolution of Restore3D, and we'll go from there. Sure, no problem. I can just give you a quick overview just to answer that. We sure founded the business a couple of years ago, and, and the idea was really to start looking at how we could use 3D printing to address not just the patient-specific and sort of biologically-specific implants, but also take a hard look at the way that implants are manufactured and distributed. So thinking through also the capacity to design implants and things for specific hospital systems or specific surgeons as well. Well, and that's great. And as I've done my research, and obviously we're in the orthopedic space ourselves, it, it seeing that you've done quite a few cases to date, and what primarily are you looking as far as an indication for Restore 3D in the orthopedic space? Well, it's a great question. We're, we're actually, you know, trying to turn the medical device startup model a little bit upside down in the sense that most medical device startups, you know, focus on one's one area. So, if, and that's been true of the businesses that I've started as well in the past. And so we, we, for example, you start as a foot and ankle business or a spine business, or, you know, probably less so a trauma business or total joint business, but also there's those exist well as well in the startup space. And we're really trying to create a business where we go after the best opportunities in any space. And so, you know, we do, as you mentioned, work outside of orthopedics, but we're also on the orthopedic side, looking at everything from trauma to foot and ankle extremity, upper extremity, looking also at, you know, in some collaborations and we have some of our own devices in the spine side, osteosarcoma reconstructions. And so really, Instead of you know building up large amounts of inventory of devices in one very specific spot, we really try to go after the hardest surgical problems and you know places where innovation is needed the most in, in any area. Well, thank you. I appreciate that because I can remember sitting in, I'll call them large orthopedic company meetings, and fantastic technology ideas come to light, and we sit around and we we would talk about them, and then we would start to apply what we thought budget would be in order to produce thousands of implants. And then all of a sudden it became millions and millions of dollars. And so I see it as, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but I've seen it just change dramatically. And over the last probably 10 years where 
R&D sat within these large orthopedic companies. Now they've gone out and smaller organizations, and I shouldn't say smaller, organizations with cutting technologies are coming to the forefront and they're basically embodying the, the risk. And it seems like you're even going a step farther where you're not tying up huge amounts of money in order to, and I'm, I'm sure that's the shortfall of trying to create a new technology. Yeah, you're right. You know, you end up in a, it's a, it's a little bit of a kind of like a startup dilemma, right? You raise money and then you put the money into a clearance. You get your first clearance or two and and you have to buy, you know, a certain amount of inventory to actually launch the product, right? And there's a, not only a time lag problem, but just a cost problem. But even if you solve the t- cost problem, you, the time lag problem is an issue, which means you you order all the inventory and eight months later it shows up. And so you really got to do a good, you have to do a good job predicting, you know, what's going to happen with your inventory. And sometimes the first product you launch is not the best one. And so then if you make a bad guess or a bad estimate, then you have, have difficulty. So we're trying to change that and go into smaller launches that are more controlled and expand and work in other areas. You often also in big companies and startups alike, you, you have a certain strength of your channel in one area and you tend to be afraid to get outside of that strength. But we're trying to explore the models where, you know, we do find good surgeons that want to work in areas. And we find if we've got great surgeons and solving real clinical problems, we're able to find, you know, distribution to the level we need in different areas. You know, whether that cuts across trauma or spine or foot and ankle or arthroplasty. And so will will the majority of your implants, obviously they, they, they will all be customized to the patient. They'll be custom. Are, are they produced there in Durham or where, where, will the, where does that take place? Yeah. So there's two things I'll, I'll just mention and I'll tell you where, how we're producing and where we're at. We are doing custom implants, which are, you know, these are exempt from FDA approval, but they're for very, you know, a small set of cases where you have no other option that's FDA cleared or approved. And so we also, and then that would be considered called a custom implant, right? In sort of FDA language. There's also, and, and those are by the very nature, patient-specific there's also patient-specific implants that are cleared. So you can get it, obtain an FDA clearance and then do patient-specific implants within that clearance. And so we're doing some of that. And we have, have three clearances right now, and we're working on a, a large basket of them in the background. And then we are also pushing the edge in that non, what I would consider almost surgeon-designed or, you know, or hospital sets or areas where certain hospitals or surgery centers or surgeons have a procedure they prefer and it would be a cleared implant and it's you know, it doesn't benefit much to be designed to the patient's anatomy in a certain case like in some cases it's you know a, a foot and ankle cotton wedge may not have to be patient specific but if you pull 10 different surgeons you might get 10 different techniques and so we are working with different surgeons on trying to understand the diversity of those type of implants that we can put out under the same clearance. And so that requires, you know, a a unique quality system, a unique testing approach, and and we're working closely to kind of develop that. And then I know that was a long, long answer to that, but that, that's, thank you. That's the different types of things we're working on. And that approach actually also allows us to be a lot more dynamic. So if you produce, you know, only one type of cotton implant, 
And, you know, and your implant is, you know, five surgeons like it and five dislike it, you're kind of stuck, right? I mean, you kind of, you don't have a way to alter it. Or if the surgeons come up with a new technique or a better way to do it, or we understand something better about bony ingrowth, you can't change your implant very easily. But our, our model by the very nature allows us to change that implant. So because of all that approach, we realized very quickly that we were not going to be able to use an outsourced supplier. The problem with an outsourced supplier is they're slow. Their job is to, you know, they, they to survive, their job is to have very large volume and to, you know, sort of set up a production schedule that keeps their machines running. And, and that's works great for the supplier, but that's actually not great for our model. We need a little more versatility and ability to switch directions quickly and ability to do things rapidly. And that also plays out in, you know, some complex cases like osteosarcoma cases, right? Where a patient needs a custom and there's no, there's no other alternative and they need it within weeks, you know, or, or trauma cases. So it is all done in Durham. We do outsource certain things, of course, you know, sterilization and some of this stuff, but some of our stuff has been validated to be sterilized on site and we can go from powder all the way to a finished package medical device on site. Great. Well, thank you for elaborating on exactly supply chain and also where you're producing it. So this bodes a question. And I, I actually had this conversation with a few different engineers I know from large ortho companies. Actually, it was about two weeks ago. And I said, could you ever see the day where you're actually 3D printing implants on site at a hospital, whether it be in somewhere downstairs or a trailer or wh- wherever that may be. And I, I got from them, ah, I can't see that happening. You, there's just way too many. And I think I know where you might answer this question, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that it's certainly possible. And, you know, the large orthopedic companies, you know, they're a series of great businesses, right? They've been around for many years and they've, you know, you know at this point, very proven businesses, but they're not, they're not great at kind of seeing the future, you know, in their own kind of their own own glasses, right? So they tend to acquire businesses that do this. And I think for them, the idea of how a quality system could be run, you know, on site or at a hospital is very daunting, you know, and certainly there are a couple of businesses that are looking at this, but they're, you know, I, I think always going to view that as a difficulty. What I will say is that it, it makes sense to produce certain things on site and some things it may not make sense. So certainly there's things like instruments and some things that you may need to support cases that could be printed pretty easily on site. Some of the implants, there's, you know, some printing methods that would allow you to print on site, you know, soon probably, but there's some printing methods, some of the metallic ones that may take longer. But I think what they're also missing is printing technologies are are changing rapidly and they're being, you know, they're getting more reliable. Printers are getting smaller. The need for post-processing is getting altered. And so I think as those things advance, that opens up some of the window to do things on site. You know, we are thinking about that carefully, but I think, you know, our view is whether you're at the hospital on site or you're close to the hospital or whatnot, it's, you know, I think are probably ways we'll think through it. We're obviously located close to Duke. And so, you know, we have some relationships with Duke since I worked there, but the business has sort of an independent relationship with them. And, you know, being very close to Duke, but not necessarily on the Duke campus has been a huge benefit, you know, in terms of speed and 
getting things done and, and having surgeons and actually patients come visit the facility. So, you know, and come see what's being made for them. And I think that that some of that is what can be pretty exciting about the future. And, you know, I don't know if that's a couple years off, five or 10 years off, but I do think that eventually these sort of distributed printing centers will, will be more common. Well, thank you for your perspective on that. And it just seems like it would be the natural progression, but like you said, who knows what that looks like in the future. I just know that as looking at orthopedics and I've been doing this for 20 plus years, it, the, it just seems crazy the days of, of, of coming to a case for a company or representative and wheeling in hundreds of thousands of dollars in inventory to use one piece out of 322 implants. It doesn't seem like that model can, can last long term. Yeah, I, I would agree. And like, as we, you know, I mentioned, that model make, makes it really hard on startups, right? When you have a new technology, you've got to kind of pick your bet, right? You've got to pick your number and you have to go after it. And if you end up picking the wrong one with your technology to start, then you're almost dead. And, you know, big companies, I think they're, they have the inventory model and it's, a, it's an advantage for them, right? So if you look at Stryker or Synthes or some of the larger trauma players, you know, for them, they don't, they want that, that future is a little bit daunting because their inventory models, what keeps other people out. They have so much inventory and availability, but, you know, I think, you know, we're looking also at, you know, we've started a bunch of, I would say fairly serious efforts in working with the artificial intelligence group and the machine learning group at Duke and thinking about how we can use that to make upfront surgical decisions quicker and designs quicker. So, you know, rather than bring, you know, 400 plates to a setup, you can actually use an algorithm to make a guess where you think the reconstruction will be and then bring a much smaller base of inventory, you know, or versatile inventory. And that that's also the approach. My other business, you know, MedShape, which is, you know, we don't work on the printing side, but we work on much more dynamic, you know, shape changing implants, implants that are more versatile, require less inventory. So I think with printed implants and then a smaller basket of dynamic implants, you could actually really kill the inventory game eventually. And I think that won't be that far off. You know, I totally agree with you. And, and you're 100% right on with the large orthopedic companies with their inventory model because they now can boast in several different situations. We have everything you could possibly need for this case. And it's just for the surgeon, it's a sense of security and, and comfort knowing that they can turn and have what they need. And it's very interesting. You talk about your AI and looking at, you know, what swaths of certain dimensions of implants would be for that indication that could obviously help tremendously in just where implants, because that's, it is the number one, whenever you sit in, in meetings at large orthopedic organizations, they talk about their just daunting inventory that they have. And obviously the margins in orthopedics allow for that, but as that changes, who knows where that will go. And yeah, I mean, you do you do end up with a question of are you getting the best reconstructions for that and, and and whatnot, and so I don't know that the approaches we're talking will obsolesce, you know, implant inventory, but it certainly could have a huge impact on the approach, and and it's not to mention also instruments, you know, and and I think the combination of robotics, which can help, you know, as you know, eliminate some instruments, right, because you can use these things to help guide the surgery. And surgical planning plus, you know, if you had an artificial intelligence guided, 
implant design process and reconstruction process, I think you really could get down to not only a lot less implants, but a lot less instruments. And, you know, the instruments is also a very difficult existence for even the big companies. You know, one thing we are also doing differently at Restore3D is we are looking at minimal number of instruments and also disposable instruments. And so these are instruments that are typically designed exactly how you, the surgeon wants for their procedure and they can make changes to their instruments. So we don't try to perfect an instrument set and then send out a hundred sets. We basically build disposable instruments for surgeons. And then eventually if they are happy with the set they have, we can turn it into a permanent set if they like, but you know, certainly at the onset, it's, it's really disposable instruments that can work. And, you know, we've done some pretty cool research to make sure we have, you know, options that are, are metal-like. So they have radio opacity, they're strong, they're tough, they're durable. And, and that's been another big thing that will be coming out of us in the next couple months. Well, it's excellent to hear. And, and one of the questions I had is when, let's just say from a surgeon identifies, you know, just to give a, an example, a, a distal tibia that's in just terrible shape. And it looks like where, you know, you're going to go back and forth, the surgeon's going to go back and forth on whether they're going to have to amputate, unfortunately. Can you walk us through, along from where the, what the surgeon will do and, and, and the, the steps with Restore 3D and how that, your, your process works? Yeah, sure. So assuming it was a new surgeon, we, we haven't worked with it all. And they, they saw something they thought needed a custom reconstruction or, or even something within a clearance they would contact us. There's a contact form through the through our website, www.restore3d.com. And they would likely get to Sarah James, who leads our kind of clinical solutions, sales and marketing function. And what we do at that point is they would send us the scan. So if they have a CT scan, we would take a look at, at that for them. And we would first assess and determine if there's a off-the-shelf 510k clear device that can solve that problem. If there is, then we we would recommend that they don't do a custom because you do have to do it in a place where there's not another alternative. And if there is a clearance that would do it that we can do, that takes them down a different path. But if there's no clearance base, then we would set up a design call with the surgeon and we would work with them to verify what type of reconstruction they need. And that reconstruction would require a custom or a patient-specific clear device. We go through the design call. We then go back to our desks and produce a design proposal. And then in that design proposal, we have taken their CT scan, segmented it, you know, cleaned it up, taken out all the things that they're not worried about. And then we propose an implant design and instrument design for them. And then they review that design proposal for us. Once they sign off on that, they, they fill out a prescription form to basically say that we have a device they need to prescribe that device and we don't have another alternative for this patient, or at least a favorite alternative we think is, is feasible. And then once they sign that off, we produce the implant. And we usually produce it in, you know, sometimes a small and a large, sometimes small, medium, large, just in case there's some differences in bone quality when they get in there. That implant is then produced and then shipped to the surgeon and for surgery. And that process, you know, if they've got time, you know, it's, it can be a month or two process. If if time is critical, we, we can do that process and usually as, as short as a couple of weeks. Well, that's incredible that you can do that in a couple of weeks. And, and I can imagine in the oncology space and 
and being able to be that quick to respond to a surgeon's needs is huge for a patient. Yeah, for both, for oncology, you have to be relatively rapid. The problem is the osteosarcoma is moving and growing and time is absolutely essential. You don't have much time and it's similar for trauma. So if it's a trauma reconstruction, as, as you know, a trauma patient might come in and get fixed immediately, right, after the trauma. But that that's usually not the reconstructive phase, right? That other reconstructive phase might happen a couple of weeks after that fixing phase where you put in a antibiotic spacer or something to try to manage infections and things, and then you come back to reconstruct. And you also, that that's also a time-mediated issue. You really can't wait months for that. Well, and as we, this evolves, it's just going to be very interesting to see how you, you, where you can go with this. And as you said, several different verticals, it's, it's exciting to think about not only for patients, but surgeons and in, in, in the oper- operating room setting. What, and I know you probably can't talk too much about this and you've kind of alluded to it a little bit, but where do you see the future for Restore 3D? Where do you see you guys going in the future? Yeah, I think I can definitely talk to some of the things. You know, we've kind of started in in sort of foot and ankle trauma, osteosarcoma, and we're doing a you know those are they're in spine as well, and we have a partnership with with C spine and, and the spine side, and so we're you know those are the areas we've started in. We have a bunch of work kind of in the future that's you know probably some of it's on the website, so you can see some of the different areas we're thinking about, but. We're looking at, you know, how do we design 3D printed implants to release antibiotics? How do we think about releasing drugs from these types of implants? We're really focused on moving beyond metals. So we have a bunch of basic research efforts in the polymer space, looking at both biodegradable polymers and then also high strength polymers that can be printed on the implant side. So if you look at 3D printing in general, there's a lot of people doing 3D printing of metals for implants. There's a lot of reasonable amount of 3D printing of instruments out of plastics, but there's really not, not many 3D printed implants in the body. There's basically one or two. And I'm not even sure in those applications that are out yet, they're using the advantages of printing. So we're looking at that and that's opening us up to some other spaces, airway stenting. We have a project in, in that area. We have a project in, in sort of resection after lumpectomy looking at a biodegradable scaffold that would go into that space. And both those are markets where the patients have, you know, quite a bit of need. And then, you know, we're also thinking a lot about, as I mentioned, the AI side and how we use that to guide some of our designs. We don't expect that's going to, you know, replace the surgeons in any sake of the word, but it would be a way for the the work to actually help supplement and augment the decisions they would make or take their 10 past decisions and, try to push them into, try to push a, a, a solution and that they can start from easier. And that's some of the ones we're going for. We've been expanding really, really fast. And we're also focusing, you know, we, we're doing a reasonable amount of customs where they're needed, of course, only. And we, we turn some customs down if it doesn't make sense either. But we're also really working on clearances in the background. So there are areas where customs don't make sense or, or just aren't the right path. And there, there's a huge market where they don't. But, you know, there are areas where, you know, in spinal reconstruction, you don't need a custom, but you do need something that's maybe more tailored to the biology of the patient. You know, thinking about how bone quality in the spine might lead to different types of porous implants you might need, for example. And so those would happen under cleared implants, 
but they would, you know, so you'd, you'd require that clearance because it wouldn't be custom from the FDA standpoint, but it would still be possibly patient specific. And, you know, that's the one aspect of patient specificity you and I haven't talked as much about, but that's another one that we are working on is the, how do we match the biology? And we have some good fundamental studies going on and sort of what, what type of porosity do you need for different patients, right? If you have a patient with poor bone quality, do you need higher porosity or lower porosity, right? And, and there's arguments to both. And so we're trying to start thinking like that as well, because that's a way to tune the implants, but not necessarily be something that's a custom implant. Well, that's very exciting because just like you you were talking about is, is if you can match those different things as far as the material to the patient, you can't get any more patient specific than that. So that's extremely exciting. Yes. And and now, you know, and I think that that's part we're excited about. And, you know, we found the FDA has really been good to work with and they have a 3D printing group and there's guidance documents. And so we've been, you know, working closely with them and trying to look at how quality systems would hold, hold things. And you had mentioned before about, you know, printers and hospitals and things, and the FDA is working on this. So I don't think it's as far out as some of the other, you know, larger companies would think. And I've found the FDA to be pretty forward thinking on a lot of issues. And now, of course, they're very, you know, we, we went through quite a bit of work to clear our own printing. You know, since we're doing the printing in-house, that was was quite a bit of work with the FDA to try to get our first clearances based on our own printing process. But yeah, I think it's well worth it for us. Well, absolutely. And it's all these different things that are going through my mind. And, and obviously, you guys are addressing all of these different things that could happen for for the future of, of, and I'm just speaking specifically of the orthopedic space and just things of innovation where, you know, someone who's, you know, is facing an amputation and then can now have a, a patient specific implant that is catered 100% to them and, uh, you know, their, their physical characteristics. It's, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's, you know, I think, you know, in the end we, we are, we are solving a couple of the, you know, problems that I've noticed over the years with inventory and, and, you know, sort of the the evolution of designs and things, but, you know, honestly, what's most exciting is we really are, you know, in some of these cases, solving issues for patients where they have very little option. And, you know, I think that that type of approach right now is available to just a certain number of patients that either require customs or a certain number of patients that might need a patient specific implant off of a clearance. But actually, I think over time, you know, I think that could become the norm and that will require the right quality systems, the right design tools and things. But that's the part that we get pretty excited about is, you know, we really do feel like we're helping these markets. And, you know, we, we've, we've looked at other markets, too. And, and what's, I think, interesting is you can go after markets that are, you know, quote unquote, orphaned or smaller markets. Right. And so some of the pediatrics areas and some of these areas where you know, larger companies just can't justify their classical approach to go after these small markets. We can go in there and help people and make a difference. And even if it is a market that's not a, you know, large enough size to justify a classical approach. Yeah. And, and what's, what's interesting about that is right. Is exactly what, what you said. You, you, you have the ability to address some indications that are currently can't be addressed and, you know, especially now you, you brought it up first is in the pediatric space. I mean, there's just some different things in the oncology, pediatric oncology that 
larger companies can't address just the, the cost, but you can. And that's that's game changing. Yeah, I agree. And that's how what makes us excited about it. And and you know, and you, and you actually also, you know, as a patient, you you want a surgeon using the devices and implants and instruments they're most comfortable with. And we've just found that a lot of times too, you know, surgeons are very specific individuals, right? And there's some great surgeons that disagree on approaches and the types of implants or instruments they want to use. And so we've just found it. We think it's better to actually put in the hands of surgeons, the implants and the instruments that they're most comfortable with, that they, you know, really tuned themselves. And if they, during the course of surgeries, figure out they needed something slightly different, we can offer a model where that can be changed, you know, and that's a surgeon benefit, but ultimately that's what the patient needs. You know, you want your surgeon to be best equipped for what's going to happen. Yes. And again, this is all very exciting. And I just, as we move forward and your organization move forward and and, and the different spaces move forward in in looking at these different opportunities, it's exciting for patients and surgeons for sure. And I noticed that you had a, a new website. If you could tell us about your website and different things of that nature, that w- how we could find more about Restore 3D if you're a surgeon and or a patient. Yeah, sure. As you mentioned, new website just launched. We waited until we had enough to really go through it. And we have a, you know, we have both up there. We have three cleared products right now. So those are up there. That's interference screw. We have wedges, which are foot and ankle cages. And then we have a cervical cage. And then we have examples of the customs we've done with sort of the you know disclaimer up there that these are customs and you, and you can't, we can't reproduce that same thing. It's more of a, a specific thing for patients. But on the website, again, www.restore3d.com. If you see things you're interested in, or if you're a patient and, and think you need these types of things, we, we have doctors that we can refer patients to. And then if you're a surgeon and want to have a look at what we're doing, we, we certainly can use the contact to contact Sarah or also myself. My email is just Ken. Ken Gauld at duke.edu. And then, you know, we also get a reasonable request from distribution partners and people that want to sell the products. And we're open to looking at those as well across different areas. And, and you know, we tend to engage, uh, just one kind of word about that, we tend to engage surgeons early in the process and try to get them, to, we try to think through the types of implants and things we want to go after. And our capacity to engage surgeons is only growing pretty exponentially because we're at, you know, we have a lot of projects in the background. And as we, you know, get more base clearances and kind of open our business up to other areas, that enables us to actually work with a, a broader net of surgeons. And I think we're open to talking to surgeons in any field. Our first answer is yes, let's look at it. I think, you know, more so than anything. And we'll be the first to also tell you we can't do it or it's not a fit for our business model. And you know, we looked across a large area of medicine and really realized that there's some areas we just aren't going to be able to make devices. A, a good example would be a catheter. It's just difficult to print, you know, the manufacturing method not being compatible. I don't know we'll ever get there. I don't know if the features we need would be printable or usable. And so that, a space like that is not great, but we're certain there's areas we're not thinking about. And so we're open to surgeons contacting us and, and thinking through it. And again, for patients, we would we have good surgeon network we can send them to for recommendations. And the website's kind of got also, I'll just mention one last thing. It's, we've got a couple different sections on it. We have, again, our cleared products. We have kind of a human body up there that you can see the types of implants we've done. It's just a general representation. So it's not everything we have have done up there. 
and then talk a little bit about our future materials and some of the other things we offer and that we're working on. Well, thanks, Ken. That's very exciting. And again, that website is www.restore3d.com. And it's loaded with great information for anybody who wants to take a look. And thank you, Ken, for your your time today. And this is so exciting. I mean, it, you, we're looking into the future here of, of what can be. And I think that not only surgeons and or patients and possibly distributor partners can see that the world is changing and your company is, is helping to do that for the best. So I really appreciate your time today. And I always ask everybody who comes on the Ortho Idea podcast, and I don't prompt them beforehand. So if you were not a professor and associate dean of entrepreneurship at Duke or founder of several different companies, what would you be doing? Well, great question. Thank you, Eric. If I could make some choices, probably professional athlete. I would enjoy that. This presumes that I'd have the capacity and the ability to do it. <laughs> gotcha. But, but what uh, professional athlete would you be in? What sport? Yeah. Well, I was a, you know, in, in high school and college, I was a wrestler. So I don't know I'd go into professional wrestling. You know, I might probably pick something else, but, you know, maybe I could be a, maybe a football player. I would enjoy that. I've gotten, you know, being at Duke, I've gotten pulled into basketball, but that would also assume that my height would have to be improved, you know, to kind of get into that, to that thing. But, you know, I think that would be, that would be pretty fun. You know, I do, it's hard to make a living off things like track and field or the Olympic stuff, but I would really enjoy something like that as well. Just the sort of challenge of the athletic feats and maybe soccer, maybe my size, you know, is about right for soccer, but that, that, that would maybe what I would, my second choice. I was going to say maybe law, which I've done a bunch of stuff on the legal side, but it's been less exciting than I think it would be to be an athlete. So I have to tell you, if it's a choice between law and being a professional wrestler, I think you should go with professional wrestling. Yeah, yeah that would be a good one. Yeah, I guess now a lot of the wrestlers go into mixed martial arts, but I'm not sure that's the path I'd like to go. I understand. Uh, I understand. Probably, probably a, more of a legitimate sport than the professional wrestling side, but maybe a little rough. <laughs> well, I understand. Well, thank you, Ken. I, I really appreciate your time today and, and our audience really appreciates it because this is very exciting what the future can hold for Restore 3D. And hopefully in the future, we look forward to bringing you on again. Well, thank you, Eric, very, very much. I appreciate it. All right, Ken, take care. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to the Ortho Idea podcast. If you would like to learn more about the technologies discussed, please visit www.orthoidea.com.